You're listening to Sprogcast, a podcast for people interested in pregnancy, birth, infant feeding and early parenting. Sprogcast is presented by Mark Harris and Karen Hall and sponsored by Pinter and Martin. Welcome to Sprogcast. In episode 60, you won't hear an awful lot from us because we've got two fabulous long interviews. First, you'll hear from Birthright's Rebecca Brion telling us about the research that went into the Holding It All Together report, looking at the birth experiences of women with multiple disadvantages. Then we have our big scoop, the interview with the secret midwife. I'm Karen Hall. He's Mark Harris. Hello, Karen. Sprogcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company. You can find them at pinterandmartin.com. And if you put Sprogcast in the checkout, uh, as the checkout code, you'll get 10%, I think it is, Karen. I think that's right. Yes. You'll find us also on facebook.com slash broadcast and on Spotify and Patreon. So, it's going to be a brief old chat about the news, Karen. I don't know about you, but every time I turn on the radio, I feel like I'm in one of those early scenes of an apocalyptic movie. It is all a bit apocalyptic, you're right, that is the word. I, 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 in fact, I'm, I'm avoiding the news a bit. I, having informed myself about COVID-19 and about the guidelines, which we're going to make a link to on the, the page, aren't we? We already have. Have we done it? Oh, yes. that's excellent. So I, I, I was a bit confused to start with about why it was such a big issue. And then I kind of did some research about crossing the animal barrier and the lack of human immunity. Mm-hmm. And I've started to become more concerned about it. Uh, and there is rumour that schools are going to be closed at the end of next week, early for Easter. OK, bearing in mind, of course, we're recording about 10 days in advance of the episode coming out. The situation may have changed by the time you listen to this. But currently, where we are, we're still being told the schools are not going to close. Yeah, and it, it, the stuff I've read, the, the kind of some of the articles I've read suggests that closing schools is maybe not uh, not the best way to go. But it's very interesting. And of course, when it comes to pregnancy, um, women who are pregnant would be in a high risk group because of the impact on the immune system. Yeah, it's um, difficult, isn't it, in our line of work to avoid people who are um, that bit more vulnerable. Yeah, true. Uh, more so in yours, I think. Very um, much so. Well, I'm working predominantly with birth professionals these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, We've been, well, NCT has been exploring ways of doing stuff, um, you know, like using Zoom, for example, to do antenatal stuff or to do um, breastfeeding support. In fact, I did, the day before yesterday, did a, a breastfeeding support call using video call instead of in person. And it actually wasn't, yeah. it wasn't that bad. No, in fact, it's quite convenient, right? It, I mean, it should be possible to run a group antenatal class from Zoom. It should be. I think yeah. it's a slightly different skill set than what I'm used to. Yeah, definitely. And, I, uh, it, you know, I train the three-step rewind, and a lot of the rewind practitioners do do work via Skype. Yeah. And what I say to them in the training is that, of course, when you're using Skype, uh, Skype you have less sensory data available to you yeah so, so all of those unconscious cues that you'd have been picking up just by being with someone you know because we're a herd animal we pick up an unconscious cues all the time yeah 
So we're picking up on all those cues when we're actually with people. When we've just got a screen, the data coming into our senses is a lot less. So we have to kind of work harder with the auditory channels and stuff like that. But it's possible for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I feel like doing group antenatal education is that much less um what, what do I, how do i want to put it? it 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 just feels less of a whole activity not doing it face to face i'm saying this i don't i haven't done it um but no. yeah there's something about the buzz of the group yeah sorry i think i call it social capital mm-hmm. you don't build as much social capital mm-hmm. through a zoom network do you yeah you know you know those side conversations about i don't know in-laws or issues you've had that week uh, don't happen yeah the um, whole net, network building kind of stuff but yeah definitely we need to be sensible yep i'm washing my hands trying to avoid touching my face i did read somewhere that it's projected 80 percent of the population will will at some point uh, come into contact with the infection and indeed have it yes though four in five cases will be mild that's the thing to remember yeah. so it's not about worrying about yourself it's about worrying about passing it on to the more vulnerable people for whom it won't be mild yeah absolutely yeah absolutely and of course once our immunity system as, as a human as human species becomes um, you know is in contact with it um, it will be like any other virus I guess yeah yeah as has been the case with other coronavirus or viri in the past is that the plural I don't know what the plural of virus is viri viri made up a word yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, as far as breastfeeding is concerned the current recommendation from UNICEF is that mothers who are breastfeeding um, carry on doing that Um, there's no evidence of coronavirus um, existing in breast milk and breast milk does have um, antiviral properties um, so just normal hand hygiene um, and they are actually saying wearing a mask when near a child including during feeding really yeah wow even though you know the evidence around mask wearing is sparse depending well, but if, on the type of mask yeah, sorry that is for, for mothers who have symptoms i oh, got it got it and yeah, Got the it. use of a mask is really only for protecting other people from people who have symptoms. So. I have been doing my best not to have a sort of like a generalised anxiety about it. And of How's course, that going? It's not, it's, well, it's not easy to do that when you're thinking about not doing it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like think of an elephant, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> is it don't think it of an elephant. Don't think of an elephant, for goodness sake. So I wish everyone out there the very best and by the time you hear this we'll know more we will know more and don't forget if you need breastfeeding support and you don't want to go out to a group many of my colleagues and i are offering video calls so just call the nct feeding line as usual and get in touch very good we've got rebecca brion coming up it's an interview that that you did in fact you did both of them this this month i did i'm sorry it's hogging that's all right ah so to give us a bit of background about the interview before we go into it. Okay, so Rebecca works for Birthrights, um, a charity that we're very fond of. And um, this report was done before Christmas. So we had a very, very brief um, you know, like five minute report from her on an episode. I think it was the December episode, possibly the January one. Um, 
and the report is called Holding It All Together and they looked at quite a small number of women with multiple disadvantages, so suffering things like homelessness, poverty, um, history of abuse and things like that. And she, they looked at their birth experiences and the experiences of the midwives caring for them. And um, she gives us the details of the results of the report in her interview here. So, hi, thank you so much for having me on. Um, my name is Rebecca Brione and I'm the Research and Partnerships Officer at Birthrights. Um, I've been with Birthrights for uh, a little over two years and particularly focus on um, areas where we are concerned that women might be less likely to receive respectful maternity care. So areas such as women facing multiple disadvantage, which I'll talk about in a second, um, women um, with impairments and disabled women, and uh, women who are facing questions around their mental capacity. And my background is uh, most recently as a medical ethicist with particular interests in issues around consent and autonomy in pregnancy and birth. What work have you been involved in at Birthrights? So most recently, there's the, the biggest piece of work that I've been involved with has been a collaboration between Birthrights and Birth Companions, looking at the rights issues experienced by women who are facing multiple disadvantage when they're going through their maternity care. And by multiple disadvantage, we sort of mean um, co-occurring co needs, co-occurring factors of disadvantage, which might include things like living in temporary accommodation um, or being homeless, um, being socially isolated, having histories or current experiences of trauma, um, living with mental or physical health conditions, um, not having enough money, being recent migrants or asylum seekers. Um, and as, as I say, having multiple of these things going on at once. If you look at a lot of the policy work and the sort of guidelines that are out there, there are guidelines that exist for women who are um, perhaps asylum seekers or women with um, mental health diagnoses. There are not so many um, sort of policy and guideline recognitions that actually there are a lot of women who are um, living with a lot of these challenges and that they all sort of overlap and interact when they're going through maternity care. So it's where there's multiple factors. Um, you've been particularly interested in looking at outcomes and care. Yes, and particularly experiences of care. So birth companions have a lot of experience in supporting women in the community and women in prison um, who are facing multiple disadvantage and supporting them during pregnancy and childbirth and the postnatal period. And we really felt that by joining up between the organisations, we could bring the sort of birthrights, human rights focus as a, a really strong analytical framework to look at the issues that that birth companions were finding that the women they were supporting and the, the volunteers who were working with women were, were raising and in a, in a more structured way. So we, uh, we joined forces to do this piece of research. So mm -hmm. we spoke to 12 women um, who were facing multiple disadvantage. We didn't define that very tightly. So um, we set out broadly what we wanted the research to do and then recruited them through sort of specialist support services and contacts with um, specialist healthcare professionals. Um, and then during the interviews, asked women about what was going on in their lives. And it was really up to them what they chose to tell me. Um, so in some cases, it might be that actually there were other things going on as well that they didn't wish to share in an interview. 
and that was really clear that it was it was up to them and then i also spoke to um 26 um healthcare professionals and specialist volunteers so um that included nine midwives who described themselves in some way as being specialists so um being a maternal medicine midwife a public health midwife safeguarding midwife or a perinatal mental health midwife uh, three midwives who described themselves as working in non-specialist roles but with experience um, of caring for and supporting women facing multiple disadvantage within a caseload or on the ward wherever they were based and then also some health visitors family nurse partnership uh, practitioner nurses who work particularly with younger women and then some of the uh, birth companions volunteers who work in a doula capacity and some of the birth companions staff as well who get a really strong overview of the sorts of issues that, that women and, the, and their volunteers are experiencing. Um, and what we really found was um, we found some really good examples of best practice where women were receiving really good care and where um, midwives in particular were able to tell us about um, how they they provided really tailored personalized care for women but we also found lots of areas where women's rights were not not being respected and where women were not necessarily receiving safe and appropriate maternity care um, where they were finding that their choices um, were not being respected or they weren't being listened to they were uh, they weren't necessarily receiving care that was um, that was private for example so when i when i analyzed the um the transcripts of the interviews and the focus groups we did um, we found that the issues that both women and the professionals um, as a group were talking about really broke down into sort of six core themes a really big theme around choice and consent um, one around women's and midwives in particular's experience of trauma and dignity in care specific issues um, for women who were recent migrants or um, asylum seekers issues around housing and um, financial hardship, um, lots around the value of specialist midwifery and the provision of continuity of carer, as well as some reflections around the sort of uh, the needs of, of professionals who are not working in specialist roles. And then the final theme, um, which again was quite a big chunky one, around navigating multiple systems and services, both from the women's perspective and from the professionals' perspectives. So the six themes that came out, which of those did you feel was um, particularly significant, important to be sharing? It's really difficult to pick one, to be honest, because as much as the, the sort of multiple factors of disadvantage overlap, then all, the, all those sort of experiences and themes really overlap. I mean, I, in some cases, so choice and consent is something that I quite I often talk about a lot when I'm talking about this work, and particularly around three quarters of the women describe situations where they felt that their choices were not respected or they didn't feel um, supported to give informed consent and some of those were sort of decisions around place of birth some of them were decisions in uh, situations which might have been obstetrically really quite complicated um, but nonetheless women sort of describing that they didn't understand why recommendations were being made they didn't understand why they couldn't discuss what they wanted so one woman for example um, wanted to have a water birth and every time she tried to raise this every time she said let's talk about me having a water birth she was told let's talk about you not having a water birth and just felt really shut down um, and it was a complicated situation that she described but nonetheless she didn't feel listened to and she didn't understand 
the care that was being recommended and didn't feel like there was any opportunity to talk about alternatives or ways to support what she wanted. And that was really striking, actually, because that particular woman um, described a really good relationship with a, with a large number of, of a sort of a multidisciplinary team. Uh, but even so, felt like she'd been sort of shut down. And um, there was a lot of conversation about risk in choice and consent decisions and women feeling that they didn't really have a choice because of the way that risk was presented. You know, um, it was more, more, you know, safer for my baby than for myself, than for what I wanted. And professionals too talked about women being browbeaten by repetitive risk discussions. Um, and that this was a particular risk both the sort of lack of choice and then scrutiny of decisions so maybe a particular risk for younger women um, or women with um, mental health diagnoses who might feel under particular scrutiny for the choices they make um, and then also on choice and consent you know a quarter of the women describe non-consented interventions and this is obviously a really small sample size but nonetheless that's a that you know that's a that's a high proportion and quite a worrying proportion. Um, you know, uh, one woman who'd actually she'd previously been sexually exploited said she didn't know whether her waters had been broken. She said, "I don't know what they're doing in my body before." Um, and another another woman wasn't given any interpretation support. So wasn't given any. She asked for it, um, but it wasn't provided. So she didn't feel able to communicate her needs. To make any choices and she wasn't in a position to give informed consent about anything that happened uh, during her labour and, and professionals talked a lot about um, very patchy access to interpretation services and that making it really difficult for them to do their job and to have choice conversations and to help women make the choices that were right for them and they also said that it it raised you know, safety concerns even when interpretation was available if it was perhaps on the end of a phone line um, or if it was um, a male interpreter who didn't feel so comfortable with what was being discussed um, you know, there were issues there were instances where um, midwives described words being um, mistranslated which could have had safety implications for women um, and they really felt that Professionals in particular highlighted that they felt that women were really unlikely to speak up or complain mm. if they'd not had their choices respected or if they'd not been supported to make choices. Um, you know, the women who say this is not okay for me are the women who've been taught in their lives to expect better, is how one of my participants put it. It was difficult doing the interviews in some cases discussing choice and consent because you obviously don't want somebody to, you don't want a woman to leave the interview feeling as if something has happened which, which shouldn't have if she hadn't if that wasn't how she presented her care if, if that makes sense yeah there's a mythical yeah. issue there yeah um but you know the one woman did say did, did describe a situation such that um it was appropriate to ask whether she'd made a complaint and she said she just had too much other stuff going on in her life mm -hmm. at that point you know her, her situation wasn't stable enough she wasn't in a position to cope with doing that as well that's really interesting. When I talk to other women not in this specific population, I hear exactly the same things. And I don't think there are that many women who've been taught to expect better and raise their voices during birth. 
interviewing Millie Hill recently about her book, Give Birth Like a Feminist, um, we talked about the gratitude women feel to carers who have done terrible things to them without their consent. And I'm really interested that, um, well, obviously there are themes that are very specific to your project, like the housing and financial hardship issues, the choice and consent, the experience of trauma and dignity, the specialist midwife, the continuity of carer. Um, that seems comparable to the general population. Is that what you feel? Yes. Yeah, so I think a lot of the issues that um, that came out are also issues that we see in our other work and that we that we see across other people's work, too. So we do see them in the general population. I think that, um, you know, bearing in mind it's a small sample size, mm. I still think the prevalence of those sorts of issues were uh, a greater in this piece of re work and in other pieces of research, um, looking at the experiences of women facing multiple disadvantage. And again, within that, um, there were more instances of disrespectful care or women not knowing or not feeling supported to make choices within the, the small population of women who were asylum seekers. So I, I, it feels like it's a, I suppose, like a, a Russian dolls sort of metaphor. I'm not sure that's quite the right metaphor, but I think these, these issues do exist everywhere. They were worse within our research. Within our research, they were worse for women who were asylum seekers. It's yeah, concentrated it's in that population. Yes, exactly. And I think as well, um, the, you know, one of the things that the birth companions um, participants talked about a lot was, and midwives too, actually, is, is supporting women to make the choices that are right for them. And a lot of women initially not necessarily coming in thinking, feeling that they did have choices. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one, of, one of the participants saying, you know, think, well, I'm living in chaos, I'm going to give birth in the chaos and it's going to be fine. But actually when there was time given to discussions about choices, um, actually a lot of women did, uh, did express things, but it was really fundamental um, sort of rights and dignity respecting choices about not being naked, not feeling exposed, not having men in the room if at all possible. You know, things that were really fundamental to them feeling safe. Mm -hmm. but, open up that discussion in order to get there in some cases and then equally those choices had to be respected in practice so one of my participants talked about a woman that she'd supported um, declining a vaginal examination and it took quite a bit to get to the point where she felt confident to decline the vaginal examination but when she did she was told oh no don't be silly we've you've, we've all got to have them and just was shut down and then did receive the vaginal examination that she didn't want. And of course, not only is that an, a sort of an egregious breach in itself, but then she's much less likely to speak up next time. Mm -hmm. And also probably much more likely to go back and say, well, it's all very well talking about these choices, but if they're not going to be listened to, you know, she, that, will, that will be fed back to other people around her as well. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I think, I think these are broader issues but they did particularly strike me in in doing the analysis and in doing doing all the the sort of primary research work so what are you hoping to happen as a result of this research lots of things um so one of the things that i that i mentioned before was particularly around the benefits of specialist midwifery and continuity of carer and you know we're really pleased to see the targeting of the rollout of continuity of carer being focused on women facing disadvantage 
as well as on women from black and uh, minority ethnic populations. I think that's really, really important. Um, we have a whole load of actions that we've identified in the in the research, some of which are aimed at sort of how the um, how the maternity transformation program is delivering its work. Some of them are around the rollout of the long, NHS long term plan. Um, we've also fed a lot of things into our own work, such as sort of how we um, provide ad advice and information and uh, and the training that we provide for healthcare professionals. And, and that's sort of an, that's still an ongoing project for us. Um, and then we're building up lots of collaborations as well. Um, so, for example, one of the things that specialist midwives talked a lot about was um, both the sort of all autonomy and flexibility that they had in the way that they practiced that enabled them to work with women and meet women sort of where they were, sometimes quite literally meeting them where they were by going to their homes. Um, and also having the sort of time and, and ability to make referrals to the appropriate services, to dig around, to find who's the person in that borough that I need to speak to when women were, were living, um, receiving care in a different borough to where they lived or were moving. And um, one of the things we're, we're very keen to do is make sure that um, that healthcare professionals who are not working in specialist roles also feel confident to um, to build a relationship that invites a disclosure if woman if a woman wants to disclose, and that healthcare professionals are then supported to know how to make those links to other services, um, because if you don't if you don't feel confident asking the questions you're less likely to ask the questions. If you don't know what to do with the answer, you're probably less likely to ask, but it's also, you really do need to know what you're going to do with that information. If you're asking somebody to disclose you know, something potentially really traumatic, like um, previous or current experiences of sexual abuse or exploitation, or living in a, in a violent situation. So we're building up a lot of collaborative partner, uh, partnerships on sort of individual, projects like that in uh, on the actions that have come out of the report was it hard for you personally to do this yeah sometimes to be honest um i think it's never as hard as living with the experiences mm. and it would be very very wrong of me to suggest otherwise but you know the midwives who talked to me talked a lot about how much they felt they were carrying in the care of women that they were supporting and actually spending a lot of time in the detail, in the transcripts. Um, I found it was more actually when I was doing the analysis than when I was actually doing the interviews, because I think when you're doing the interviews, you're trying to do so many things at once, mm -hmm. to reflect what you're, what, what you're saying and where you might go next, as well as really actively listening. But I found that, that working with the details of women's experiences, um, printed out in black and white, was really quite hard, actually. Um, probably more than I had appreciated, although I had been warned. Um, so I probably should have realised. There's, there's another thread there on the support for midwives working in, um, yeah. working with these women. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, we, we asked midwives about that. Some said that they had um, at least theoretically good access to restorative supervision, whether they actually had time to make those appointments is another matter but some really didn't and you know the one of the things that we call for in the report is for um, tra trauma-informed maternity care 
and that is obviously for the benefit of the women but also for the benefit of all healthcare professionals who are working in what must be a very stressful very difficult environment and you know often particularly it, midwives are trusted they are the people to whom women will often speak and will often disclose what's going on and there was a, a general sense from a lot of the conversations that i had that those contacts are the ones that women will keep so um but then that does put the midwife in 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 a position where she is quite literally holding it all together mm. and that's really, that's you know where the title of the report came from um and without without that support that's a huge amount of pressure and potential trauma to be carrying you know one of the midwives i spoke to um talked about a woman who'd had her infant um, removed into social care but was she was still contacting her midwife a year later because she was the person that she trusted that's really hard yeah yeah it was it's you know i had huge huge respect for all the women who spoke to me and the situations and the complexity that they were dealing with in their lives and for all the healthcare professionals who described how they worked and how they um, advocated and supported and worked to meet the needs of, of the women in their caseload and the women that they were seeing um, seeing in their practice. Mm -hmm. So what's going to happen next? Is there going to be another study or um, are you able to extend the work? I feel like um, because of the small numbers, it's potentially easily dismissed and I wonder how you can make it stronger more impactful well, yeah i mean we've actually had really really positive feedback from everywhere we've taken the research so um across sort of networks of specialist healthcare professionals but also the royal colleges yeah so we've been re really pleased with the positive feedback you know from the professional networks you know so many people have said this reflects what we see in our practice every day um but it's really good to have it written down in this way and the Royal Colleges and NHS England and everybody else. Whilst it is a small sample size, there are actually quite a few other pieces of research that it sits alongside. So there was a study um, led by Jenny McLeish um, published last year that, was, that looked at um, the experiences of women facing multiple disadvantage. There was peer research that Birth Companions did with the Revolving Doors Agency, which took a, um, a slightly different um, view of looking at women's experiences in North London. So I don't actually really think that that more research is is the answer. I think I think we have the I think we have the information that we need. I think for us the focus now is really campaigning for the for the policy and the services to make sure that you know in all the big change programs that are happening at the moment um, and all the service transformation that the needs of women facing multiple disadvantage are front and centre. I mean, frankly, if you get care right for women in the most complicated circumstances, everybody benefits. Yeah. Um, and just making sure that the most complicated sort of co-occurrence of needs are able to be, you know, the women are able to be properly supported within the services that that are that are coming out, and that that healthcare professionals have the training and the skills and the competencies that they need in order to provide the care that they want to. That's brilliant. Thank you, Rebecca. Is there anything else you would like to add? I think I've given a taster. Yeah. I would say do please read the report. Um, the, you know, the executive summary on our, uh, on our website is very accessible. And, yep, um, I've shared it. Yep, thank you. Um, the full report is rather longer. 
but I would really recommend reading it and I would say that wouldn't I but actually the the depth of the experiences that women in healthcare professionals shared with us you know I felt a huge responsibility in doing the report to reflect those properly and even as the author or the main author every time I read it I take something new away right so I really recommend you know do, do take the time if you can to read it. And it's on um, the website, which is birthrights.org.uk. Yes, that's right. And easily found. So yes, we'll, we'll link it again. Thank you. That's where people can find it. Thank you so much for talking to us about it, Rebecca, and no. good luck with what you do next. Which we'd Thank like you very about. much indeed. Thank you. So that was very interesting um, to hear about the research and also interesting to talk to Rebecca about what it felt like to do the research because um, she had to listen to a lot of quite hard stories. Um, my thoughts yeah. about it were um, that it's a shame it was such a small number of women. Yeah. But I guess we could say that it's a starting point and she did say you know there are already some positives coming out of this yeah and the thing about narrative based kind of research methodology you know you know ethnographic phenomenological type work is that people's felt experience is generalizable yes no, no, matter, no matter how how small or big the group is you know, it's not like positivistic methods where large numbers are very important. You know, when we're talking about people's lived experiences, other people can hear those experiences and identify with them themselves anyway. Yes, and it's very rich information, qualitative information that she's got there. Yeah, very good. And like Dennis, you know, my old mate, Dennis, we had a beer this week. You know, he would say that qualitative methodology is generalizable, uh, but in different ways to say RCTs and stuff like that. Yes. And also, it, it is important to be considering how we're looking after the people who are having the most difficult time, not just in birth, but in society, really, again, in the, the context of our current health situation. It's the way we care for the most vulnerable. That tells yeah. you the most about us as as a culture and a society Definitely. so i'm glad we've got that interview and i hope people enjoyed listening to it absolutely so now we've got the secret midwife interview which is a bit of a, a what do they call it a an exclusive i like scoop scoop i prefer scoop this is a bit of a scoop uh, I had reached out to the secret midwife on Twitter uh, and was told by her directly, whoever she is. Um, <laughs> it's a bit like the Scarlet Pimpernel, isn't it? Yeah. They seek him here, they seek him there. Uh, I had been told, no, it, it almost certainly wouldn't be possible. And then I got an email from you saying you'd arranged it. So how does, how does all that work out? I just asked the right people, Mark. <laughs> I think I did look up the publicist and the, the sorry, not the publicist, the publisher and right. email them. And we had a bit of a conversation about how can we do this to, and protect our anonymity, which as you yeah. see or hear when you listen to it, um, what we did in the end was um, because she has a co-author, 
I sent questions in advance. She wrote down answers to the questions and then the co-author read them out to me doing her best acting. And she was very, very good. I don't want to preempt it because um, I've got comments to say after everyone's heard it. So. Right, well, let's let that happen then. I'm talking to Katie Whites, who is the co-author of The Secret Midwife, and I'm going to get Katie to explain why she's talking instead of The Secret Midwife herself. Okay, so um, Philippa George is a pseudonym, uh, a pen name, because uh, the real um, Secret Midwife is a working NHS midwife, and um, if her identity was revealed, there's every possibility that she might lose her job. And I'm afraid that her voice uh, would completely identify her. So um, for the interview, she's written out um, her answers and I'm just expressing her words on her behalf. That's wonderful. Thank you. And it's really great that we've got the team of you to be able to do this. Yes. Um, and that also went some way to answering one of my questions, I think. I've got questions, you've got prepared answers, and we're going to do this as naturally as we can. <laughs> so firstly, thank you for your book. Um, it reveals a side of maternity care that is perhaps known to those of us working in birth, but seems hidden from the general public in that it's so heartbreakingly difficult to perform this crucial job to the best of your abilities within the constraints of an overstretched system. I'm really grateful to be able to chat with you. And while I absolutely respect your wish to remain anonymous, I think it's revealing that you have to. What makes your book different from other NHS whistleblowers like Adam Kay and Leah Hazard? Oh, well, I'll, I'll be brutally honest. I don't actually know because I haven't read them. Um, is that bad? I mean, I have seen and heard of both, especially the Adam Kay book. But for me, um, it was never about setting out on a journey to write a book about my job. Uh, for me, it was a form of recovery from depression. Uh, so during my illness there were times when I would just lay in bed watching the sky out the window for hours not being even able to bring myself to get up or have a shower or even clean my teeth so you know the last thing I could do was to read a book especially one about a job that had brought me to my knees um, I spent months at home clinically depressed and you hear about mental illness and depression and you think, oh, that's something that happens to others, not yourself. And, you know, when it did, I was lost. You know, I've been doing something I thought I loved for 15 years. And, um, you know, all the self-doubt crept in. Maybe I was kidding myself. Was I not cut out for this? It was like a black cloud engulfed me. And uh, I questioned everything I thought I liked, I loved and knew and it wasn't until my husband suggested I wrote everything down that things clicked into place for me. And I just started writing pages and pages of memories that popped into my head. Um, and it felt like I was getting things out, you know, getting things off my chest. And every day something else would trigger another memory or thought and I wrote it down and, it, it, you know, slowly it made me feel better. And even while I was doing this, I never, never in a million years envisaged doing a book. You know, books to me were way out of my league you know they were for intellectuals to write and that wasn't something I saw in myself or even thought possible um it wasn't until my husband read my rantings and was so instantly hooked that he said well this needs to be shared and you know things sort of went from there um and then even you know when I was writing the book uh I didn't want to read any other medical memoirs in case I started comparing mine and theirs or it made me feel 
inadequate or boring or <laughs> rubbish and I suppose it was just another way to protect my mental health because I was still you know quite fragile at this time and it seems silly looking back but I didn't I didn't want the pressure of trying to compete um was my mindset was and still is I wrote this book for me from the heart so it's not just another medical memoir like it might be for other people to me you know this was the cure to my illness and that isn't something I can really compare with anything else um but knowing what I do of Adam Kay's book I know he was a doctor uh, so his training and experience the NHS will be totally different to mine but I've seen extracts in magazines and papers and I, it, it does seem we are singing from the same hymn sheet with regards to the issues within the NHS and I have to say I think he's a lot funnier than I am um, and Leah's book I think would be different because she's also a midwife but I think she's an NHS Scotland midwife so the staffing and funding and other bits and pieces are slightly different. Um, I know, for example, that in Scotland there are 65 midwives per 100,000 population and in England that equivalent number drops to around 48. Um, I mean, from what I've read in articles and online, Leah is a true advocate for birthing women and she's flying the flag for midwives everywhere, which is bloody brilliant. And even better, she's bringing our career into the limelight within the media and I have a huge amount of respect for that. Um, I'm just a bit more comfortable in the shadows, uh, which I feel allows me to tell my story freely. And what I will say is that both Leah and Adam's books are sound brilliant and they are 100% on my poolside list for the summer and I hope mine is on theirs. <laughs> Thank you. I would say I didn't find The Secret Midwife to be boring or rubbish. Um, I've read a lot of these memoirs as I've mentioned to you and I sat and read this in an afternoon really enjoyed it wow in the first part of the book the sheer joy of midwifery shines through but you're adamant that motherhood and your depression didn't change you as a midwife and I wonder if you still feel that now when you look back over your career well looking back I don't think motherhood changed me uh, but it, it did give me a better understanding of the whole process from the inside looking out um, the physical aspects such as pregnancy and actually being pregnant really opened my eyes to a lot of things like you know worries I never thought I'd have um, and how protective you become of your identity you know your whole body and your mentality changes um, and then there was the birth, which I thought I knew all about, but it turned out I didn't. <laughs> um, the actual pain of labour came as a real shock. Uh, I was adamant, you know, it shouldn't hurt this much, but it bloody does. You know, that instantly gave me so much more respect for birthing women. as it's, it's a pain and a feeling you really can't relate to unless you've experienced it. And I don't think anything can ever prepare you for that you know even being a time served midwife dealing with it from the outside most days of the week um the depression i think at that aspect only changed me so much as to look after myself more from a personal perspective um and yeah it had a massive impact on me of course it did and looking back i should have been putting myself and my husband and child front and center but the care I continue to give right up until getting ill and at the point at which I returned never differed. You know, I was, I was professional, I was courteous, I was polite, smiley and attentive to my women. You know, even though on the inside I was a crumbling wreck. Um, and I think that's the thing with mental illness, especially depression, you know, it's quite easy to hide. 
even more so when you start to lie to yourself or you give yourself targets like, um, well, if I can just get through this day or if I can just get through the end of the week. Um, but, you know, you don't. You just get worse and worse. It's like a tap slowly filling up a, a bowl. You know, you don't realise that after a while, every drip adds up until, you know, the bowl overflows and the whole thing's a mess. And, you know, that's what happened to me. Um, today I'm, I'm still on antidepressants, you know, these little tablets that are keeping me balanced and making me normal. But, you know, I asked myself, should I be taking medication just to get through the working week? Um, you know, when I take a step back and I evaluate my experience, I realize that no, you know, I shouldn't. And that's when I start to think about how I can get my dosage down. How can I get off them and the conclusion I've come to is that the only chance I'll ever have to stop taking my medication is for things to change so um so yeah actually I think the depression did change me a little you know I, I've stopped blaming myself and thinking it was me who was at fault or, or weak or going crazy and um realize it's it's more the system that's to blame it does feel like it's the system that's to blame it's awful that you had to go through that um, the cover of the book says this is for fans of One Born Every Minute and a little sticker. What message do you think expectant parents will take from your writing? And it's not just expectant parents that watch One Born Every Minute. My 94-year-old grandmother does. And if she was expecting, I'd be very, very surprised. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, um, I suppose that's, yeah, that's quite a subjective question. You know, some are going to think it's not as bad as I write and some are going to think it's worse. Um, uh, the NHS is always centre stage, you know, whether it's in politics or in the news and more often than not, you know, it's for the wrong reasons. Um, and people often make, you know, their assumptions and uh, get their ideas from the contact and experience they've had with our health system and in other areas like, you know, their GPs, community nurses or trips to A&E. And I just, I just hope that they get the message that I'm not, you know, I'm not buttering things up. I'm not making things out to be worse than they are. I'm, just telling the truth of what is really happening and has already happened to maternity services within the UK and it's certainly not meant to scare parents you know we we are the same qualified midwives in the same hospitals with the same love for the job you know but we are stretched um, we do have less funding and resources and if anything the staff are probably better trained and educated than before it's just a shame there just isn't enough of them and I, I just hope um, maybe people begin to understand, you know, why they're waiting around to be seen and, you know, why it's not our fault that maternity services and units are shut and they can't get a community midwife to visit or why we haven't got time to chat or give advice after the birth. You know, we're not being rude or ignorant. We're just so very, very busy. Um, and I just hope, you know, people stop blaming the hospitals, blaming us, and maybe even stop blaming the trust because, you know, they can only play the hand they are dealt and the dealer who could change all this in an instant chooses not to, you know, but when they're in an environment where patients and numbers and pound signs are not people, you know, it's easy to say no and pretend everything is fine, I guess. That's an interesting take on the question. I was wondering and i'm not asking this a quest as a question i know you haven't got an answer to it um on the secret midwife's behalf um i was thinking that parents might be taking that sense of the midwife as their advocate and it could be empowering in that way 
And this brings us to the next question, which is that you're very clear in the book about your role as the mother's advocate and the importance of listening to women. But there is one story, which was one of the hardest parts to read for me, um, where you clearly want to override the mother's wishes and describe her as irrational, where she refuses monitoring despite meconium in the waters. Do you want to talk more about how you reconcile that? Well, with a situation like that one specifically, I, I don't think you ever do reconcile. I mean, um, I don't feel any different now than I did back then, no matter how many times I've tried to, you know, compartmentalise that birth. The only thing I can say is that it was a truly abhorrent set of circumstances and we had no control or rights of intervention over it. And I've lost count of the amount of nights I've stayed awake and laying there thinking, you know, could we have done more? Did we do everything right? What if it was another midwife? Could they have done better or more? Um, and, you know, like I say, this job, this just follows you home, not for the night or for the week, but often for life. So it's something that, you know, has played on my mind uh, for a long time afterwards. Um, yeah, and on other births where things have become a little unconventional and started to lead down a road to possibly, you know, dangerous circumstances, I have been able to rationalise with the birthing lady, which is not to say, you know, I won't get another one who chooses not to listen to the voices of expertise and reason. But you do tend to find quite often nowadays that mums are more clued up on complications and risks. So what with the invention of the internet and Google playing a major part in this. Um, but then it's a bit of a catch-22. You know, it was often a, a five-minute Dr. Google consultation will normally point you in the direction of the worst-case scenarios and complications, you know, so obscure. I haven't seen them in over 6,000 births. Um, and it can, at times, you know, also give voice to people with no medical expertise that might issue false statements or facts or figures. So it's a bit of a, you know, a double-sided thing. I can see that. And I think it's obviously it was a really hard situation for you. Um, but at the same time, I'm also really aware of the human rights perspective in that she had every right to make that decision for herself. And I can't imagine how hard it is to know that in yourself you feel that decision is wrong and for her to know in herself that she feels it's right. Really, really tough situation. Um, I was really shocked at how unsupported you were by the hospital um, in terms of the individual incidents, um, their unwillingness to accommodate your needs as a breastfeeding mother, your story of not being able to express was just awful, um, mm. and through your depression. What advice do you have for other midwives in similar situations? Um, well, my advice is to put yourself first. Um, you just have to, although it's not something that many of us in the caring profession are used to doing um we care too much and that that boils down to the type of people who do these jobs you know if you worked in a factory or in an industry where you were given this type of workload and extended hours and the conditions and as you say the lack of support you just walk away you know or you work to rule you wouldn't stand for it so why do we do it in the nhs um I think it's because of the mentality of the people who work there. You know, we are carers. We care about our patients. Uh, but there has to be a line. And if not, we'll just continue to be taken advantage of and in some cases just exploited. Um, so my advice is 
take the holidays you're entitled to. You know, if you're sick, stay at home, put your feet up, get better. If the ward is short-staffed, it's not your problem, it's a management problem because you can only do so much um, anymore and, and you will burn out. It's not a question of if, if, but when. I mean, you know, you know from reading my book how many other health professionals I've encountered who have exactly the same issues. Um, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, work on the go slow or, you know, be lazy, but it's, it's okay to say you're busy when you are, or, you know, if the workload is getting too much, I, I just think, you know, only if we speak up and refuse to work under such pressures and conditions, will things ever change? Yes. No, I think you're probably right about that. It's such a difficult situation and it is because um, people working in this area really passionately want to do it. Um, thank you so much, Katie, um, for voicing the words of the secret midwife. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having us on. When is the book published? It's out now in hardback and uh, published by John Blake, The Secret Midwife, Life, Death and the Truth About Birth by Philippa George, The Secret Midwife and myself, Katie Whites. Super lovely. Thanks, Katie. That's thank it. You. I'm going to stop the recording. Wow. First of all, the writing of the questions uh, must have been excellent because she did a fantastic job, didn't she? The woman that was acting. Yeah, she was great. <laughs> Honestly, it's so, you know when you hear it on the, on the BBC and people standing in and all the rest of it? And it's so obvious get, they're reading. Yeah, you get a real, it really sounds like there's someone doing their best to act. Yeah, the frustrating thing about it was not being able to do any follow-up questions. Because, you know, in a normal interview, there's an exchange and I respond to what the person says and they respond to what I've said and we couldn't have any of that. Yeah. I, yes, having said all of that, all of those constraints, it felt like a, a real, inverted commas, flowing interview. Yeah, I was Very good. What were your thoughts? Well, I... There was just some of the the comments that uh, that led me i think i made notes i even texted you i think at the time you did um i did there was just a a sense that it, it felt more like a mental health story of someone with mental health challenges inside a system that we all know is is broken at, to some degree and I guess where I'm coming coming from is, you know, it's, it's kind of like the two women I looked after that's, that appeared to have the same experience, you know, a birth underwater and all that kind of stuff, dim lights. You know, one of them said the experience was the best thing they'd ever experienced. And the other woman uh, had full-blown PTSD symptomology. You know, the, the environment wasn't the main issue it was the uh, how the person uh, having the experience was responding to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think that is what what the story is that in the environment that she was working in, which was very highly stressful, that that is how um, she responded to it. You know, her the effect of it on her was to cause this fairly major depression. But there was a, and I get that. And I'm not excusing the environment. Don't don't get me wrong. I, it, it, there was just a sense of passivity in the answering of the questions 
that was almost blaming the environment. And I don't think we can kind of in a blanket way do that because there are thousands of midwives in those environments not having the same um, damage being done to their mental health. Does that, does that make sense? It, it makes sense to me in the context of the anecdote you just said about the two birthing women both having different reactions to the experience they had. It's not because there's something faulty in one of them. It is because that is the way, that is the impact that their experience had on them. Yeah, unique. So it, 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 for me, it was less of an expose about the system and more of a commentary on her mental health. If, if that book that we both enjoyed a lot by the junior doctor, what's, Adam uh, what's it called? Yeah, I love that book. And there was a sense in which that book led me to the conclusion, uh, well, so a, a more firm conclusion about the brokenness of the system. Because he, he wasn't, um, pointing to the system and blaming it for his own response. There was less of that in his book than there is in this book. Um, I think. You haven't read the book? I haven't read it. I heard the interview. I, think, I, I tried to get a copy. I, I think if, a copy. if you read the book, I think you might look at it differently, although I, I can't predict how you'll feel about it. But I wonder if um, the the slightly richer experience of of you know the, the the knowledge that you get of her situation from reading the whole thing and i'm looking forward so on I'm looking might forward to it. make it different it's out isn't it and we've got a link to it that's right and um we're very happy to have had that interview so big thanks to the the secret secret midwife the scarlet pimpernel of midwifery for giving us an interview yes thank you very much and uh, certainly uh, we wish her all the best so we're just about done for this episode. If you've got any suggestions or comments, do get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. That's facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. Uh, please do review us on iTunes and remember to find us on Patreon. Uh, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Karen Hall and Mark Harris. The news we've been discussing is on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Sprogcast. And don't forget you can buy great books from pinterandmartin.com using the discount code Sprogcast at the checkout.